So thankful that you are here tonight. I look forward to our presentation this evening. Um, it's going to be very exciting, and uh, it's going to be a journey in Bible prophecy. And uh, so I hope you're ready, and we can all buckle up our seat belts, our seats as we get going on this journey. Uh, this is our second night in this series, Certainty in Uncertain Times. How many of you were here yesterday evening? All right, quite a number of you. How many of you are here for the first time tonight? Welcome to you. Glad you joined us. Um, we are going to look at a prophecy that is found in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament. We looked at one yesterday as well, and the prophecy tonight is really going to build on the prophecy we looked at yesterday. But even though you were not here yesterday and you just joined us this evening, you won't have a problem with following along as we're going to do a little bit of review uh, as we get into these things. One thing I love about Bible prophecy is the principle of repetition and enlargement. And it basically works like this, and every school teacher will know this, that in order to, for your students to remember something, you have to repeat what you have said before and then add a little bit more, right? And then you repeat again what you've said and you add a little bit more. And this is the way that people will remember what you've said. When you study Bible prophecy, amazingly, you will find this principle all the way through, all the way through the book of Daniel, all the way through the book of Revelation, you'll find the, rep the, the principle of repetition and enlargement. And so you'll see how this works this evening as we get going. Uh, our topic, the title of our topic this evening, as you've looked at the flyer, is Has Religion Failed? And uh, before we get going, we're going to have a word of prayer, invite the Holy Spirit to be with us, and we'll get right into it. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we're grateful to be gathered together here we uh, look forward to what you have in store for us in your word this evening, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us in the study of Scripture, and I pray, Lord, that you'll remove all distraction from us so that we will be able to grasp the beautiful truth that you have laid down for us. Father, thank you so much for the blessings that we have already experienced. Lord, just that song we heard, indeed, you are good, and may we experience that through Bible prophecy tonight. It's my prayer and the prayer of us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if I would go and take a little survey um, here in Montgomery or in any uh, city, uh, and I would ask people the question, uh, what do you think about God? Um, do you think that I would get a unanimous answer, the same answer? Definitely not. If I would ask 10 different people, I might even get 10 different answers. When we look at what people believe about God, it varies very widely. Um, if there's a topic of discussion that, um, you know, creates differences, uh, it is really the topic of religion or the topic of God. And, uh, you know, it, it depends where you've grown up or what church you belong to or what books you have read or have not read. Um, the situations of your own life plays in. Uh, there's a lot of opinions about who God is. And uh, the title this evening that I gave to this message, to this study, is Has Religion Failed? And the answer to that question for many is yes. And what I want to do tonight is go to the reason why it has failed for many. We're going to go on a journey in history and in Bible prophecy, and we're going to find out why religion has failed for many people. What is behind it all? And I can just right away give you a little bit away where I'm heading with this, uh, kind of my premise of tonight's presentation, 
is that I believe that many times religion has gotten in the way of the revelation of who God really is. In other words, God wants to reveal his character, but then you have people that say, I'll reveal who he is, but they fail to do that. Are you with me? And in their failure to do that, people look at the people and say, well, if that's what God is like, then I don't want to have anything to do with him. And so this is really the premise of where I'm heading here. God wants to reveal his character, but the question is, how is his character being revealed by the people that profess to follow him? And what we're going to do is through Bible prophecy, we're going to go back in time, we're going to push the rewind button, and we're going to look at how this happened throughout history. How was God's name defamed? How was God misrepresented? And how has this resulted in the, um, in the world that we live in today? today? So that's going to be a little bit where we're going to head with this. Um, I like the analogy that you also find in Scripture where God says that he is the potter and that his people are to be the clay. You'll find this analogy in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, where God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. And right there, as he's looking at the potter at work, God speaks his word again and says, this is what I want to do with my people. So this is the analogy that God gives, the picture that he gives. He is the potter and his people, you and I, are the clay, right? The potter shapes the clay. Now, and this you find, by the way, all throughout Scripture. It's very interesting. You, you just start in the book of Genesis, and when God created the first human being, he created them from the dust of the earth, and then he breathed his own breath, and man became a living soul. So right there in the picture of creation, you already get this analogy of a potter, right, at work. God shapes, God forms, God molds. And yet, what has happened in the course of time is that we have taken this picture and we have twisted it upside down. And instead of God forming us in his image, we are now forming God in our image. Isn't that what has really taken place? And isn't it interesting that you'll ask one person, well, what do you think about God? Well, this is what I think about God. And then someone else will come along and look at that picture and say, I don't like that picture of God. I think God is like this. And then someone else comes along, well, I don't like that picture, and I don't like that picture. This is my picture of God. And what is happening is we're basically just creating our own picture of what God is like. And then the question is, well, is there just, are there just many gods? Or do all roads lead to Rome, as they say? Or is there something else going on? Is there a fundamental problem that is happening here in which we need to get back to the word of God and say, okay, let's lay aside our own opinions and let God describe himself. Let God reveal himself. I mean, is, has God revealed himself? I believe the, the answer to that question is yes. And I believe he has revealed himself in the pages of this book, the scriptures. And so if I want to know what God is like, it's not like kind of a guess game. But it's actually, I can start reading this narrative of Scripture, these stories, these amazing prophecies, these parables, these poems, this history, this sacred history. And as I read this, it is really a revelation of the character of God. And something amazing starts happening. Because as you read the Scriptures, those Scriptures, these words, they start coming alive and they actually start shaping your life. 
God becomes the potter and you become the clay. It's really my prayer that in the course of this prophecy seminar here, that that's a little bit of the experience that we will have, that as we go to the Word of God, as we study these prophecies together, that it will not be merely an assent to some truth or some theory, but that it will really be an experience that will impact your life and actually shape the way that you make your decisions. Amen? Because we are living indeed in very important and solemn times. Now, um, as I said, we're going to look a little bit in history, uh, and we're going to look at some power structures that have misrepresented the character of God. And uh, I want to start with this quote here. It's from John Emmerich Edward uh, Dolberg Acton. In 1870, he made the following statement in a letter that he wrote to a friend. And these words are pretty well known. Maybe some of you will even, this will sound familiar. You've heard this before. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, um, you've maybe heard that quoted before. Uh, The interesting thing is, when you look at the setting in which these words were actually written, uh, John Acton was on his way, as a representative from England, he was on his way to uh, to Italy, to Rome, uh, to a Vatican council that was held there, Vatican Council I, or Vatican I as it's referred to, And um, the the question that was really up in the air or the debate or the discussion that they were going to have there at Vatican I Council was whether or not the Pope, which is, you know, the, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, whether or not the Pope is infallible. Now, what does that mean? To be infallible... Uh, means basically that everything that the Pope says, by definition, is true. Um, This is also referred to as ex-cathedral, or if he speaks from the cathedral, if he speaks from his position as a Pope, by definition, it cannot be questioned. It's true. And so this was a discussion that they were going to have concerning the infallibility of the Pope, which, by the way, was passed. Um, This was the decision that the the church made. But this was up in the air, and and John Acton wrote to a friend, and he was actually not in favor of the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. And he writes to his friend, and he says, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So what we see here is a structure that is um, greedy for power, and history basically reveals the outcome of that. And uh, um, we're going to go a little bit here on a journey in history, as I said earlier. There's a very interesting story that occurred, real story. Um, There were two men, uh, grew up in England, and they were tutors or students under the morning star of the Reformation, which was none other than John Wycliffe. Uh, John Wycliffe was the first person in England to actually translate the Bible, which hitherto, till that point, was always read in Latin, he actually translated it to English and made it available for the common people. Now, you would think that that would be something great, because now the scriptures were not only available in a language that the majority of people couldn't read or understand, but now it was actually for them to read and examine for themselves. Yet the Church of Rome in the Middle Ages, or what is also termed the Dark Ages, was not happy with that at all. As a matter of fact, uh, John Wycliffe was excommunicated from the church, and even many years later, uh, they actually, they they digged up his bones and they burnt them, uh, just to make sure that this this guy would, you know, would, 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 they actually basically just, you know, uh, wanted to make sure that everyone would understand that this was a heretic and that he was to spend the rest of his eternity in hellfire. 
Uh, and so the church was really very, very opposed to the idea. Here you have a church, <laughs> just think about that, that is opposed to the idea of, of getting the scriptures, the revelation of God, into the hands of common people. Now, uh, two of these students of John Wycliffe um, they actually made their way to um, Bohemia, which is now known as present-day Czech Republic. And this was the time that the Reformation was kind of beginning. Now, uh, if, if that's a terminology that you're not so familiar with, let me just give you a little bit of a, um, a big picture here. Um, what had happened is, in the early movement of Christianity, basically the truth went forth and the gospel was being preached during the first centuries, and everything seemed to go pretty well. But... After the formation of the church, the church went into a period that we also could refer to as deformation. In other words, things went downhill. And what happened was a lot of traditions of other, uh, you know, other philosophies and traditions of even pagan worship were coming into Christianity, into the church. And the church went through a period that we could also call the Dark Ages. Lots of paganism in God's church. And out of this period of deformation basically came the Reformation. So you can think of it kind of in these different steps. Formation of the church, we're 2,000 years back in history. Then we go through a period of deformation or the Dark Ages. And then we come to the period of the Reformation. And there were men and women that stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. I mean, why is it that only the priest can teach the Word of God? Why is it that only the services are held in the Latin language? Why is it that we have to confess our sins to the priest and not to Jesus? Why is it that this? Why is it that Rome is becoming so powerful and so corrupt and it's not representing Jesus in any way? And so there's this, there's this outcry against the corruption that is going on within the church. So far, so good? So this is happening, and then there's these two individuals, and they travel to, to the uh, modern-day Czech Republic, and they started preaching with power. They said, we need to get back to the Word of God. And they started preaching uh, in the churches and on the marketplaces and challenging people, challenging the establishment of religion that was in many ways misrepresenting the very words of God. And as they were doing this, a law was passed, that they were not allowed to preach because, after all, they were laity. They were not clergy. Only the clergy had the authority to teach the Word of God. And so they were silenced. But the interesting thing is that they were not only preachers, but they were also artists. And so they took their paint, right, and their canvas. They went to the marketplace. This is a true story. And they painted, both of them painted a picture. One of them painted the picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The other painted a picture of the Pope with all his prestige and pomp and pride. Isn't that powerful? I mean, doesn't a picture speak a thousand words? And so you can imagine as people would come by and they would look at those two pictures, they didn't say a word, but they were preaching with great power. They were preaching against this establishment that had happened during these dark ages, a, a church that had basically kept people from experiencing the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so this was going on, very interesting history. Now, um, a little bit later, um, after this long period of the dark ages, this long period of this misrepresentation of the word and this misrepresentation of Jesus Christ, the nation France went through a very um, a time of great turmoil. Uh, some of you have heard of the French Revolution. Now, what was behind the French Revolution? This is interesting history. 
the French Revolution was kind of like a pendulum swing, a reaction to the misrepresentation of religion in the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. They got so tired of the oppression that was coming from the Church of Rome at that time, from the oppression of all these, you know, um, um, all, all these requirements and all these burdens upon the people and all the corruption that was going on, that they re reacted to that by pushing religion out altogether. There's a very interesting quote in the book, The Great Controversy, that pictures what happened with the nation of France. Uh, the Great Controversy, page 220, says, it was popery that had begun the work which atheism was completing. Now, I just want you to let those words sink in for a moment. It's kind of interesting, okay. So popery had begun to do something, and atheism was completing that. In other words, atheism was a result of many years of a misrepresentation of the character of God in the name of God. And so they are so tired of this that they throw it out altogether. Now, what happened in France is really kind of what happened. This was what happened on a major scale. It's happening on a minor scale in many people's lives, even until today. Listen to what it says. This is interesting. Taken from the same book, The Great Controversy. It says, um, this is talking about what France basically went through during this time. Um, after France had renounced the worship of the living God, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, it was only a little time till she descended to degrading idolatry by the worship of the goddess of reason in the person of a profligate woman. When the goddess was brought into the convention, the orator took her by the hand, and turning to the assembly, he said, Mortals, cease to tremble before the powerless thunders of a god whom your fears have created. Henceforth, acknowledge no divinity but reason. Isn't that interesting? Now, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that, because what he's saying is, there is a god that your fears have created. And that was true. The God that had been portrayed during the Dark Ages, as we're going to discover together in the course of this series and look at some of the teachings that were prevalent at that time compared with the teachings of the Bible, you will find a stark contrast there. So the, 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 the picture that was given of God was really a picture of a God whom they had to fear, really fear. And so they, are so, they have been so distant, distanced from this God that they now think, well, you know what, let's throw it out altogether and let's just embrace reason, reason. You know, the, what they would refer to as the enlightenment. They thought they had come over this superstitious religion thing and now let's just go by reason. We, we, we're smarter than all of this. Isn't that exactly the world we're living in today? I mean, what happened in France on a, you know, in, in a country-wide way is happening in individual lives today. I have had numerous conversations with people as I travel all over the world and, and conduct these presentations. I've, I've had conversations with people that will tell me, well, you know, uh, I turned away from religion because of this and this and this, and they give a picture of God that is not in accordance with Scripture. And I think to myself, how tragic. They're, they have turned away from God because they have not understood in reality who He is. I heard this amazing story of a friend of mine. He was... He was traveling on a plane, and as he sat down, he, uh, he took a book out to read, and it was very obviously a, a Christian book. And so he opened it up, and the, and the young man sitting next to him looks over, and he sees that he's reading a Christian book, and he says, are you a Christian? And, uh, and my friend says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And he says, well, I am an atheist. 
And uh, my friend came up with a very good answer. He said, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. You're an atheist. Tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And so he started doing that. He says, well, I don't believe in this God that, you know, just, just arbitrarily decides who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost without our choice involved. And I don't believe in a God that, or, and I don't believe that there can be a God that burns people forever and ever. And he goes on to tell about this God that is nowhere found in Scripture. And so my friend, after he's finished with his, you know, rant, he turns to him and says, well, in that case, I'm also an atheist. Because I don't believe that there's any such a God in the universe, but let me tell you about the God that I do believe in. Amen? This is the, this is the case, my friends. There are millions in our world today that have turned their back on religion. They have turned their back on Christ because he has been misrepresented. And I believe, I have a, a passion in my heart, a desire for, for my life to be dedicated in, to, to uphold the character of God as he really is. What do you say? To show people like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just before you turn your back fully on God, this is who he actually is. This is what he's actually like. Maybe you just want to reconsider for a moment whether or not you have a true understanding of the character of God. Go to his word. Don't be the potter shaping God. Allow God to be the potter and allow him to reveal himself to you. Amen? Now, with this a little bit as the platform, as the foundation for our presentation, then we want to go now to um, Scripture, and we're going to study this topic um, about the Antichrist. How many of you have heard that word before, Antichrist? We're going to look at Scripture, at prophecy, what it says about the Antichrist. Now, when I'm talking about the Antichrist here, this is the Antichrist, capital A. There is a system or a power that is prophesied in Scripture, revealed in Scripture, and this is a system that misrepresents the very character of God. And we're going to try to find out, with a careful study of Bible prophecy and a careful study of these Scriptures, we're going to try to find out which power this is, which system this is, and what it has done in the course of history, and what it is doing today, and what it's going to do in the very near future. So as I said, if your seat has a seatbelt, you want to put it on, because this is going to be a rough ride. Okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to, 4, 1 to 4, it says, Let no one deceive you by any means. And this is, by the way, a letter of Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And he writes to them, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, and when he's talking about that day, he's talking about the day that Christ will come back. He already talked about it in his first letter, and now he's also addressing it again in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians. He says, don't deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. In other words, Jesus is not going to come back before something's going to happen. He's going to tell us exactly what that is. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, what is that falling away all about? He says, and the man of what? The man of sin is revealed. And who, what else is he called there in the end there? The son of? Son of perdition. Okay? who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul is describing that before Christ will come back, there's going to be a major deception, and he doesn't want the believers to be deceived by this deception, and this deception will involve a power that is called the son of, also termed the son of perdition, that will put himself in the very place of God. Now, this is very interesting. The word antichrist, the word anti, can actually mean two things. 
When you think about the word anti, you might immediately think of that's something that is against, anti-against. So anti-Christ is against Christ. And that is part of the meaning of the word anti. But the word anti can also mean instead of or in place of. So when we are talking about the Antichrist in Bible prophecy, we're talking about a power that is not only opposed against Christ, but we're also talking about a power that has put himself in the place of Christ. Okay? And this already appears very clearly in this text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because what does this power do? He opposes himself, right? Against, uh, exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In other words, he wants the position of God. Now, does that sound familiar? Yesterday, in our first presentation, we looked at the topic of the great controversy, the origin of evil, and we found out that there was a being in heaven called Lucifer, or Satan, that wanted the position of God. He even made war on God. He lost his position on earth, and this same power is now working through human instrument, through a human power, through a human system, to basically gain what he could not gain in heaven. Okay? So this is what we're seeing take place here. Now, it is very interesting, this phrase here, son of perdition. This phrase only occurs two times in the entire scripture. One time as a description of the Antichrist here in 2 Thessalonians 2. And guess where the other place is? There's only one other place where it is used. And it is used to describe... Judas, the disciple of Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? He was also called the son of perdition. So when Paul is thinking of language, how can I describe what this Antichrist is going to be like? How can I describe what he's going to do? He is like the son of perdition. And Judas was called the son of perdition. Now, what was, what was Judas all about? Judas was one of the 12 disciples, remember? But he was the disciple that betrayed his master, Jesus. And remember there in the garden of uh, Gethsemane, Judas comes up to Jesus and he doesn't betray Jesus with a punch in the face, but he betrays him with a kiss on the cheek. In other words, what we're looking at here is not some outer opposition, but some inner betrayal. So if we're looking at the characteristics of the Antichrist in prophecy, we are not necessarily looking at some political power that is against religion and against Christianity, but we're rather looking at a power that is working from within to betray the very principles and truth of Jesus and is misrepresenting his character. Does this make sense? Okay? Now, let's look then at what Paul has to say about this in the book of Acts chapter 20. He gives kind of a warning of what is going to come. Here he is. This is actually written uh, not long before um, he was um, basically, it was, it was towards the end of his ministry, and as he's looking in the future through the corridors of time, and he's looking at what is going to come uh, to the Christian movement at large, he gives the following warning. He says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he says, things are going to change. Things are going to change. Wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now, put these facts together here. We are seeing that there's really something going on from within the Christian body. 
right? From within Christianity, there would be a corruptive power at work. Now, all these texts that we've looked at so far is really like has laid the foundation for a prophecy that we're going to go to now in the book of Daniel. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, written between 500 and 600 years before Christ, we have an amazing prophecy in the seventh chapter. And so we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7, and what this prophecy does is it takes us from where the prophet Daniel is, between 500 and 600 years before Christ, in the time period of ancient Babylon, and it leads us throughout various kingdoms to the rise of this Antichrist power, of this system that would misrepresent the character of God. So let's, let's look at this prophecy together. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel has a dream, and in this dream he sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. And uh, we don't have to kind of guess what these beasts represent. You don't have to, you know, take a hat and, and, and you know, pass it around in the audience and everyone throws in their answer and then I kind of shovel it up here and take out the answer and then we know what a beast represents. That's not how it works. Because the beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing about Bible prophecy is that the Bible itself gives us the interpretation. So the Bible gives us the symbolic representation, and then it also gives us the meaning of that symbolic representation. And in the book of Daniel chapter 7, verse 17 and verse 23 tell us that these great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms. Very interesting. The beast is a kingdom. So Daniel has a dream and sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. What is he seeing? Four kingdoms, right? Coming up one after the other, leading us from the time he was living in right to the arrival of this Antichrist power. Now, um, they come up out of the sea. It's also interesting because in the book of Revelation, which is really, by the way, the twin book of the book of Daniel. If you're going to study apocalyptic prophecy, you have one book in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, and you have one book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and those two you need to study together. You need to compare them together because a lot of symbolism is similar and the one will explain the other. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and verse 15, it tells us that water represents people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So in other words, out of the commotion of nations, out of the commotion of people, these kingdoms are rising and falling. They're rising and they're falling. Very interesting. Well, let's take a look at these four kingdoms as we are leading up to the arrival of the Antichrist power. The first beast is described in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4. And so you can follow along on the screen or you can look it up in your own Bible. This is what it says. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So the first beast that Daniel sees in his prophetic dream is a lion that has eagle's wings. And immediately we could say again, well, what nation, what kingdom does this represent? And we could, you know, we could do some guess game. But we don't need to do a guess game because the Bible, again, reveals this for us. There is a passage in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 7, and also verse 13, which, which talks about the invasion of the kingdom of Babylon, which invaded Judah. And listen to what it says regarding the kingdom of Babylon. It says, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way, and his chariots are like a, whirl, like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. 
Interesting language that is used there. It is also interesting to note that when you look at the, um, some of the archaeological discoveries that have been made of the ancient civilization of Babylon, you will find that Babylon had as, a, as their national symbol a lion with wings. You would find it at the entrance of palaces, the entrance of temples, the entrance of their cities. So this is interesting. Babylon represented by the lion with the wings. This was the kingdom that ruled in the time that Daniel the prophet was living. Remember, we talked about this yesterday. He grew up in Jerusalem, in Judah, but Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, had invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, and taken them captive. And so as he received these prophecies, he was actually a captive in Babylon. And so when you think about the prophecy that we looked at yesterday, you remember that when King Nebuchadnezzar had that dream that we studied about in Daniel chapter 2, it was this metallic man with different, you know, it was a man made of different metals, and each metal represented a kingdom. And when Daniel gave the interpretation of that prophetic dream, he pointed to the head of gold and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, which was king of Babylon, you are represented by that head of gold. Interesting. So here comes the principle that I introduced this lecture with, the principle of repetition and enlargement, right? So we have the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold in the prophetic image was representation of Babylon. Then we come to Daniel chapter 7, and now we don't have a metallic man, but we have beasts coming up out of the sea. But the first beast, the lion with the wings, is also a representation of Babylon, right? But we have a little bit more information about these kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7. Different information, right? And so this is the principle that we find here in Bible prophecy. Now, Babylon ruled from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. And just as the head of gold was a good representation of Babylon because they had a lot of gold, we talked about that yesterday, so the lion with wings was also a good representation of Babylon because they were really some, they had this royalty over them. They had this power, this might. They seemed to be unconquerable. But we looked yesterday at how that happened. We looked at the historic event of how Babylon fell and another kingdom came on the scene. And can anyone remember which kingdom that was? Medo-Persia, exactly. Babylon was followed by Medo-Persia. And in Daniel chapter 7, Medo-Persia is pictured by this bear that is raised up on one side and has three ribs in its mouth. Look at the description in verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And here we have Medo-Persia, reigning from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. In the prophetic picture of Daniel chapter 2, Medo-Persia was resembled by the chest and arms of silver. In Daniel chapter 7, we have here this beast, not a lion, that was the first beast, but the second beast, this bear raised up on one side, which is interesting, three ribs in its mouth. The three ribs were really the three nations that it conquered. It conquered Babylon, it conquered Lydia, and it conquered Egypt, the three main nations that this uh, nation conquered. But we don't stop there. We go to the third beast representing a third kingdom that followed Medo-Persia, and we read about the third beast in Daniel 7, verse 6. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So here we have a leopard, four wings, four heads, 
This is a very fast creature. And you remember, as we looked at the history yesterday, Greece, or the Greek Empire, was a rapid conquering nation that followed Medo-Persia. And in the first prophetic picture of Daniel 2, resembled by the thighs of bronze. And Greece, which followed Medo-Persia, rapidly conquered uh, throughout the regions of the Middle East, all the way onto India in a matter of about eight years on horseback. Quite remarkable against all odds. They were much they had a much smaller army than the Medes and Persians, and yet they overthrew them. And uh, prophecy reveals these different powers that are coming on the scene. We continue here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. We come now to the fourth beast. And look at the description of this one. It's quite different than all the others. Daniel 7 verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth that was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So here is a ferocious beast that cannot even be likened unto anything in the animal kingdom. The first was like a lion, the second was like a bear, the third was like a leopard, but this one is kind of like a dragon-like figure. And um, this is a representation of the kingdom or empire of Rome. In Daniel chapter 2, represented by the iron legs of the prophetic image, in Daniel 7, represented by this ferocious beast. And this is quite simple because what we're doing is we're just basically taking Bible prophecy and going hand in hand with history. And history reveals Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece, Greece was conquered by Rome. And Rome ruled from about 168 BC to 476 AD. Now, we get a very, to a very interesting point here because you will remember that in Daniel chapter 2, in the prophetic image, all the way in the bottom there, the feet were made up not of one metal, but they were made up of iron, but also of clay. So, and, and the Bible prophecy told us in Daniel chapter 2 that the kingdom would be divided. Now, this is interesting because in the prophecy of Daniel 7, the fourth beast has how many horns on its head? You remember? Ten horns on its head. Now, the Bible tells us what the horns represent. Take notice of Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. The ten horns are what? Ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. In other words, prophecy reveals that there would be one kingdom, a second kingdom, a third kingdom, a fourth kingdom, and that fourth kingdom would be divided. That's exactly what happened. And we looked at this yesterday as well. This is the divided Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not conquered by one other nation, but it rather crumbled to pieces. There was corruption from within, there was opposition from without, and it just fragmented into many different nations and kingdoms. Here you have a map of the different nations and kingdoms from the West Roman Empire at that time. Now, it's very interesting. This imagery, you can actually find... Um, I was a couple of years ago uh, preaching in Germany. I was invited to do a series of presentations there in the city of Nuremberg. Nuremberg. And um, as I was spending some time there, uh, some friends of mine, they took me into the city center and we're walking around there and suddenly they pointed to something absolutely, that just, just amazed me when I saw it. Uh, in front of this courthouse, there were these statues, and I want to show you a picture of these statues here. This is in Germany, in Nuremberg, at the entrance of the courthouse in the city there. Look at what this is. This is a lion with wings. You see that? 
Here you have, it's maybe not so easy to see on the picture, but here you actually have the beer with three ribs in its mouth. And here, this is a picture of a, a statue of someone that is dressed up in the ancient Babylonian custom, right? And here you have a person that is dressed, a statue of a Persian um, individual. This was one of the entrances, and here is the second entrance. Here you have four heads, the leopard, and here you have a Greek figure. And here you have this beast, and I counted, it has ten horns. And here you have a Roman soldier, a Roman individual. Isn't that interesting? Actually, my friends that lived in that city, they, uh, they, they played this little game, or they, they, they wanted to test if people actually knew what this was all about. And so they took a little camera on the street, and one guy was interviewing, and so when people would pass by, they would say, hey, have you ever wondered what that represents? And they would point to these, to these statues, and they would ask the question, do you know what this represents? And uh, almost all people said no idea, no idea where this comes from, no idea what it all means or where it comes from. And uh, they were doing this for, 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 uh, for a while, and then they interviewed the tour guide of the city. The tour guide, he comes by, he says, I'm the tour guide of the city. You know, I, I know about everything here. And so they asked him the question, well, what do these statues represent? And uh, he came up with this whole interesting history, but nothing from the Bible. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So, so here we have some, some picture, uh, you know, that this has obviously made its way into some art form here, uh, and it comes directly from Scripture representing the different nations, the different kingdoms, all the way from Babylon, all the way to Rome, and into the division of Rome. Now, now we get to the real interesting part here, because now we come to this part where we have the arrival of the Antichrist. Now, take notice of the next verse in Daniel chapter 7. We've seen the four beasts. The fourth beast is there, has ten horns, division of Rome. And then this is the next picture that the prophet Daniel beholds. We're reading here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. Listen to what it says. I was considering the horns, that is the ten horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So just get this mental picture. Fourth beast, ten horns. Suddenly there's like a little horn coming through, and he's pushing out three of those other horns. And Daniel, the prophet, is looking at this scene. And there in this horn, that is that little horn pushing up there, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And that word pompous words, it, it is actually, it, it has a connotation to blasphemous words, words of blasphemy. A little bit later in the chapter, when you drop down to verse 25 and you read a little bit more about this little horn, it tells us that he spoke great words against the Most High. In other words, against God. Okay. Now let's look. What is, what is this horn? Rep who, who does he represent? What does he represent? Well, let's look at the characteristics because, again, we could play the guess game, but that's not the way we want to arrive at a uh, responsible interpretation of Bible prophecy. We need to look at all the identification marks. So what are the identification marks that we have? It arose among the ten horns, remember? So it came up out of the Roman Empire, the broken Roman Empire. In other words, when you're looking at the Antichrist power and you want to spot it, then you should not be looking somewhere down in New Zealand or in Australia or in the United States of America. Or where should we be looking? The broken Roman Empire. Are you with me? 
So somewhere around there must be the arrival of this power. It arose after the ten horns. In other words, after the Roman Empire breaks up. There's this new power coming on the scenes that speaks against God. He came amongst the ten horns, amongst the breakup of the Roman Empire, after the breakup of the Roman Empire. These are very important characteristics for us to note. He was different from the ten horns. And we're going we're gonna to see in just a moment that this was not just a political power, but a religious power. This power was speaking blasphemous words against the Most High, against God himself. And another very important identification mark, he displaced three horns. In other words, three nations were removed so that this nation or this power could come on the scene. And those three were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, which were three nations which were defeated by this power in order for it to have its place on the scene of Earth's history. Very, very interesting. Now, there is only one power that fits all the identification marks of Daniel chapter 7 of the little horn, and that is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, before I go any further in this presentation, I want to make it very clear here that we're not out to attack any individual here. I believe very strongly as a Christian that God has his children in all denominations. Can you say amen? So I'm not here to say, okay, we're now against the Roman Catholics. As a matter of fact, I come from a Roman Catholic home. My parents were Roman Catholics. All my family were Roman Catholics. I grew up in uh, New Zealand and in Holland, so I know very much about this system and about this religion. I know there are loving people in this system, but Bible prophecy reveals that this was a system that misrepresented in a major way the scriptures and the character of God. And all the characteristics, my friends, point to this fact. We're talking here about a system, not about people, a system. And this system has done that in the course of many years, as we're going to find out. What took place? Well, look at, let's look at history here for a moment. This is taken from um, a, a book on the history of what took place with the transfer of power between the Empire of Rome and the Papal Church of Rome. It says the following. To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. Now, and then, it, yeah, let, let, let's, we'll, we'll take the other quote in just a moment. Constantine was an emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, what happened is you might remember that he became a Christian. We don't know how much of a Christian he became because actually what happened is he brought all paganism into the church. He said, okay, you know, we've got a lot of pagans in our, in our empire. We've got a lot of Christians in our empire. And they're always fighting together. So how, what are we going to do to solve this? And so he said, okay, I'll become a Christian, but I'll... Um, facilitate for all the pagans, you just bring your rights into the Christian church and we'll just merge it all together. What he then did is he actually transferred his capital from Rome to Constantinople to deal with the affairs of the East, and he gave his power in Rome to the pontiff or to the Roman church that was now emerging on the scene of Earth's history. It was the Roman church that made war on the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, and defeated them in order for them to have a place of power. Remember the little horn pushes three other horns to have its place. All the identification marks fit, and they all have to fit in order for us to come to a, 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 a reasonable conclusion of what, which power we're talking about here. Now, let's look a little bit more at what history has to say here. This is taken from Stanley, Stanley's History, page 40. The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome 
inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism, the papacy is but the ghost of the diseased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. In other words, one is just going into the other. Remember, the little horn came up out of the fourth beast. It was the Ro pagan Roman Empire that gave power to the papal empire. And this papal power, this Roman church, ruled for centuries on end. They ruled with great power throughout Europe. The kings of Europe, they just bowed down to the papacy. It was an empire under one God and under one pope. But as we look at this time, also referred to as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, the sad fact is that scriptures were buried in traditions. So uh, if you would want to know what the scriptures said, well, first of all, you were not allowed to own a Bible. And when you would go to a service, the service would be in Latin, which the majority of people could not understand, and the only people that could rightly interpret Scripture were the clergy or the priest. And so the priest would tell you what God is like. Now, there are a lot of things that happened within these, uh, during these dark age periods. For example, there was a, a man by the name of Tetzel, and they had to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica, which you can still go and see in the city of the Vatican in, in Rome. And in order to raise funds for this building, Tetzel would, um, would travel throughout Europe and he would go to these marketplaces, and he would actually um, uh, speak to the people there. He'd speak in churches. He would speak on marketplaces, and he would say, you know, your loved ones right now are in purgatory. And purgatory, by the way, is not a teaching that you find in Scripture. It was really an invention of Rome. And on a future night, I think it's going to be Friday, next Friday, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what happens when a person dies, and what does the Bible teach about hell? So you got to make it on Friday. But what happened is Tesla said, your loved one is in purgatory. They are burning, and it's still to be determined where they're going to end up, in heaven or in hell. But if you pay now your money to the church, then we will declare your loved one um, to be a saint, and they will move into heaven. Now, what do you think the people that had no access to Scripture, no access to the revelation of God, what do you think they're thinking? Uh, let me get some money. Because I'm going to pay my loved one. My loved one is burning right now. They're burning. Oh, man, do you know how fast they went to get that money? And they said that the moment the coin, you know, clinks on the bottom of the treasury, your soul, the soul of your loved one goes right to heaven. And so the money was streaming into the church, and they built St. Peter's Basilica. This is the legacy of St. Peter's Basilica. Many people don't know this history. This is the legacy of a power structure that had corrupted itself by placing traditions of man on the scriptures. That's why when the Reformation broke out and people said, hey, wait a minute, let's get back to sola scriptura, the Bible only. Let the Bible speak. Let the Bi let, let's see what God is really like. And they started, they started basically you know, finding out more and more about God, more and more about the gospel, and they started opposing the church of Rome. And they got in trouble for that. Many of them were burned. Literally, millions of people lost their lives during the Dark Ages. People were burnt on the stake. They were pulled by horses. They were literally pulled apart for owning Bibles. This is a history that many people have forgotten. Millions lost their lives. More people lost their lives during the Dark Ages than the Second World War. More people lost their lives. Because, and they were dedicated to know God and to pursue this. And my friends, for you and I to own a Bible today, there are people that have lost their lives for that. 
And sometimes we just put the Bible on the shelf and it collects dust. And yet this is a blood-stained book, my friends. People have paid with their life to make this accessible for you and for me. And just the fact that we can come and, 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 and hear the preaching of the word in freedom, I'm not a clergy person, I'm a lay person. I've never studied in any college or university, but I've just, I just sat down with that book and asked the Holy Spirit to reveal it to me. And isn't that beautiful that we as lay people can just do that? I mean, but this is a freedom. This is a freedom that has been bought uh, through millions of people that have been willing to stand up against the oppression of religion during this period known as the Dark Ages. And the reason why it was dark is because the Bible says that the Word of God is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. Amen? So the lamp was, was covered up. The light was covered up by the traditions of man. Now, with this in mind, the study of the book of Daniel chapter 7, we're now going to connect this with another prophecy that we find in the book of Revelation chapter 13. And so we're going to make a little jump here from the book of Daniel to the book of Revelation. And what we're going to find out that in the book of Revelation, this prophecy that we find in the 13th chapter basically is, again, a repetition and enlargement of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And this is the description that you find in Revelation 13. Now, Revelation was written not by the prophet Daniel, but by the disciple John. You might remember John was the disciple of Jesus. He wrote the gospel book of John, the fourth gospel book. And John, this is maybe an interesting fact that you might know or might not know, was actually the only disciple that didn't die a martyr's death. So they all died martyr's death, but John, actually tradition tells us that they took John, put him in boiling uh, oil, but he didn't die. And so what they did is, well, okay, we, I guess we can't kill this one. And so they banished him, exiled him to the island of Patmos. And it was on the island of Patmos that he received revelations from God, which he wrote down, and this became known as the Apocalypse, or the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, in chapter 13, he has this incredible vision, this incredible picture that he sees. And God reveals a beast rising up from the sea, Revelation 13, verse 1, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now look at the description of this beast, verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a what? Leopard. His feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, does that ring a bell? If it doesn't, I have to start my sermon over. That should ring a bell. Daniel chapter 7 revealed to us what? Coming up out of the sea, lion, bear, leopard, dragon. Now we fast forward to the book of Revelation and John looks at the sea. Out of the sea comes a beast. We should immediately connect. Okay, beast, power, right? Kingdom. And this one looks like all the four. In other words, this is an amalgamation of the four that he saw, that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. In other words, what Bible prophecy is trying to tell us, this, there is a connection here. We're talking about something similar. And as we're going to look at the identification marks of this beast, we're going to find out that it's the very same power that the little horn revealed in Daniel chapter 7. So the little horn or the, the Roman church in Daniel 7, the little horn, is the same power as this beast that comes up on the scene in Revelation 13. It's a repetition, and now it's going to enlarge upon what this power is going to do. So let's look at the identification marks. Verse 2 tells us that it received its seat of authority from pagan Rome. Um, and we just read that, verse 2, because remember, the dragon gave him his, his power, his throne, and great authority. So the dragon was Rome, pagan Rome, 
and pagan Rome gave power to papal Rome. So that's where it received its power from. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that it would be a persecuting power. Here it is, verse 7. It was also given to him, that is this beast in Revelation 13, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So the Bible tells us that this power would make war against the very saints of God, the people of God. Now, that's the same thing that we read about in Daniel 7 regarding the little horn. Verse 21, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. You see the connection here between the two powers? Another identification mark is in verse 5, it would reign for 42 months. Look at the text here in verse 5, Revelation 13, 5. There was given to him authority to act for 42 months. This is the time that this power would rule. Now, there's a very important Bible prophecy principle that we need to talk about here, and that is the principle of a prophetic day equaling a literal year. When you study Bible prophecy, particularly the books of Daniel and Revelation, there are time prophecies that are mentioned that are decoded, uh, that are coded rather, and that we need to decode, uh, in which it reveals, in which we see that it's not talking about the literal time. When we read 42 months, these are not 42 literal months, but we need to apply the principle of a prophetic day equals a literal year. And this principle can be found in Ezekiel 4, 6 and Numbers 14, 34. A day equals a year. Now, people have asked me this question. This is a good question. Why? Why is it that when you study Bible prophecy that things are not written? Why is it that their codes are used, symbols are used? Why does it use a beast? And why does it just say Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece? Why does it use, you know, this coded language? Why is that? I think there are two reasons, two main reasons. Reason number one, God wants you to study your Bible. Gold is more appreciated when you dig for it than when it drops down on your lap. That's reason number one. Now, if that reason doesn't satisfy you, I think reason number two will. Reason number two is this. When these prophets wrote these things, when Daniel sat down and wrote down these visions, when John on the island of Patmos wrote down these visions, if they wrote it right as it was, these books would not exist today. <laughs> In other words, they would be destroyed because they were talking about the fall of the powers they were under. Daniel was under Babylon. John was under the empire of Rome. Can you imagine if he just wrote, out, wrote straight out what was going to happen? Those letters would never made it to the church when he sent them from the island of Patmos. So, in other words, for the very existence of these books, for the protection of the prophetic message, the message was given in symbols, okay? And that's why it's for you and me, but not too hard, not too hard to understand. Some people say, well, you know what? I just gave up on the book of Revelation. I can't understand it. I had one young lady say to me, I read the book of Revelation and it gave me nightmares. You know, and other people say, well, the Revelation, the book of Revelation cannot be understood. Well, that makes no sense to me. You have 66 books in the Bible, 65 of them can be understood, but the last one can't, and you give it the title, Revelation? Like, like it doesn't make sense to me that the Christian church is trying to just avoid this book. I mean, I've had Christians come to me. I've been a Christian 20 years. I've been a Christian 30 years. I've never heard a lecture on the book of Revelation. What a shame. I mean, is it true that we can understand 65 books and not 66? I mean, this book is given to us for a reason. It is a revelation. It is a revelation of the character of God. It is a revelation of the character of Christ. And it is a revelation of powers that have sought to misrepresent him and 
This book unmasks these powers so that we are aware of this struggle between good and evil. We need to know this, amen? We need to study this. I'm getting off track here. I need to continue. My time is going. So, a day equals a year. So, if you take 42 months, okay, then how many days do you have in 42 months? Well, in Bible prophecy, uh, a, a month has 30 days to make it easy. So, you don't have the 30, 31 thing. 30 days. And so, 30 times 42 would make up 1,260, 1,260. So, 42 months is 1,260 days, but we apply the day-year principle, and so we don't have 1,260 days, but we have 1,260 years. Now, now this, is, this is amazing. The Church of Rome, during the Dark Ages, ruled for exactly 1,260 years. Fits exactly. Listen to this. This is History of the Christian Church, Volume 3, page 327. Vigilius, which was a pope, ascended the papal chair in 538 AD under the military protection of Belsarius. Now, something different happened now because up till this time, the Church of Rome was a church. They could say what they wanted to do, and you could go into their services, and you could say, well, sounds good. No, I don't agree with that. And you could walk out, and you could disagree or agree as you wanted to. But in 538, something happened. Church and state became one. And so now the kings of Europe, they said, okay, we're going to all unite under the church of Rome, and whatever the church says, we will enforce. So now you have a military power behind the church of Rome. Now persecution started, because now the church, now it was no longer the issue of agreeing or disagreeing, because if you disagreed, you were a heretic, and a heretic was condemned to the flames. And so from 538... For 1260 years, all the way to 1798 AD, was this period of the Dark Ages, a great persecution in which millions and millions and millions of people lost their lives for believing in the Word of God, for believing in Sola Scriptura, for not going along with the customs and rituals and traditions of a church that had put itself in place of Jesus Christ. Some of the things that were going on, uh, listen to this. This is some claims that the church made during, those, during that era. The church may by divine rights confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. The right to inflict the severest penalties, even death, belongs to the church. There is no graver offense than heresy, therefore it must be rooted out. And that's what they were doing during this period. Um, that the Roman Catholic Church has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. And my friends, sadly, this history has been forgotten, largely forgotten. Now, during this time of the Dark Ages and during this period of 1260 years, there were glimmers of light because during this period, the Reformation was starting up, especially towards the end of this period as you get into the fifth. 14th, 15th, 16th century, you got the Reformation starting up. There were places, for example, in northern Italy. You had a group, uh, um, a group of people there called the Waldenses, and they uh, lived in these mountainous areas, and they started translating the scriptures and spreading them throughout the continent of Europe. There were other reformers that stood up against the church of Rome, like Martin Luther, which was himself a Catholic monk, but realize that salvation does not come through works, but it comes by solely trusting in the works of Christ. And so righteousness by faith, these beautiful teachings of Scripture, emerged on the scene uh, during this period, and other reformers followed in his footsteps. Uh, this is actually a picture um, I was visiting here in the city of Worms, where Luther basically stood up against 
the, um, against the, 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 the rituals and traditions of Rome, and he made that very famous statement. He says, already I feel greater liberty in my heart, for at last I know that the Pope is Antichrist and that his throne is that of Satan himself. Now, Martin Luther had never, never, never imagined in his lifetime that he would ever, ever step out of the Roman Catholic Church. But it came to a point that he saw that it was a church that was not representing Christ, but misrepresenting Christ in its teachings, in its doctrines, in its corruption, in all. And so he had to step out and he had to take the word of God. He was never intending on starting a new church or starting anything, but he started preaching the word of God and eventually things started to happen. Now, back to Revelation 13, we have a couple of more identification marks that we want to look at. According to Revelation 13, verse 3, this power would receive a deadly wound. I saw one of his heads as, as, it, as if it had been slain. So this power would rule for 1,260 years, but the Bible tells us that it would receive a deadly wound. Now, in the year 1798, at the end of this 1,260 years, listen to what happened. The murderer of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to the papal temporal power. This was at the time that, um, um, let's see, who was ruling at that time? Yeah, it was Berchet. Berchet was the, there you go, Berchet was the commander of Napoleon. That was the name I was looking for. He was in France, and so he sent his commander into Rome, and what they did is they basically separated church and state. They took the pope captive, um, and church and state were now separated. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope they declared had resigned. Yeah, 1798, Hebrew made his entrance into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. So this took place in 1798 after the 1260 years of papal tyranny and papal oppression. Now, now it gets really interesting because Bible prophecy predicts that this power that ruled in times past is again going to emerge upon the scene in our world today. The Bible tells us in Revelation 13, verse 3, that its deadly wound would be healed. And then we read in, in, in Revelation 13, 3, his fatal wound was healed. And not only that, it also tells us that it would be a worldwide system of worship. Listen to the second part of the verse there in verse 3. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So prophecy predicts this, this beast comes up on the scene, this power comes on the scene, it rules for 1260 years, it receives a deadly wound, it is, it is gone, it seems to be off the scenes, but then it will come back and it will merge up again and it will come and it will receive so much power, so much authority, that the Bible says that the whole world will seem to have followed this power. Now, when you look at recent history of the Roman Catholic Church, it's interesting to know, we just go a couple of popes back and we go back to Pope John Paul II, when he died, you might remember, I don't know, maybe some of you watched it on TV or you read about it in the newspaper. When he died, literally representation from all over the world gathered together in Rome to give honor to, this, to, to him. As a matter of fact, there were American presidents that were kneeling at the casket of the Pope. Now, 
America, and we're going to talk more about this tomorrow, America is really built upon the principle of the separation between church and state, right? Because they realized that, that when, when, when they got on, you know, when they, when, they came, when they came to America, it was like, wow, something went wrong there in Europe, and we don't want to repeat that. Let's separate church and state. And yet, you see that is changing in our world today, that it's, that it's, it's slowly but gradually the... Uh, Protestantism and even many nations and different religions are coming back to the, what they would term the mother church, the church of Rome. And the church of Rome is very happy with that. They call themselves the mother church. And again, I want to just reiterate here, we're not trying to attack any person here, but we're talking about a system that the Bible prophecy reveals is misrepresenting the very character of God. Now, of course, we see the popularity of the papacy is on the increase and on the rise in our world today. And according to Bible prophecy, it's just going to get more and more and more. Revelation 13 verse 5 tells us that it would speak words of blasphemy. There was given a mouth, him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. When you look at the Bible, at what it means to speak blasphemy, it's very interesting. Jesus was accused of speaking blasphemy on two occasions in Mark chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, and John chapter 10, verse 31 and 33, they accused him, Jesus, you are speaking blasphemy. Why did they accuse him of doing that? Is because Jesus claimed to forgive sin. Now, does Jesus have the right to, to forgive sin? Yes, obviously he does. I mean, of course he died for our sins. But they thought, they, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. And so they said, you are blaspheming when you claim to forgive sin. Another time in John chapter 10, Jesus made himself like God. He basically said, you know, before Abraham, I was. So he is claiming uh, equality with God. Now, was Jesus equal with God? Yes. So he could make that claim. But they said, you are speaking blasphemy. So if we go by the biblical definition of blasphemy, it is to claim to forgive sin and it is to make oneself like God. Okay, now for Jesus, he could rightfully do that. But take a look at the claims of the Roman Catholic Church. This is taken from their own sources. Seek where you will through heaven and earth, and you will find but one created being who can forgive the sinner. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Catholic priest. There's only one that can forgive, and it's the Catholic priest. Were the Redeemer to descend into a church and sit in a confessional and administer the sacrament of penance and a priest to sit in a confessional, Jesus would say over each penitent, Ego te absolvo. The priest would likewise say over each of his penitents, Ego te absolvo. And the penitents of each would be equally absolved. In other words, what they're saying is the priest has the exact same authority and power to forgive sin than Jesus Christ himself. Okay? The Pope, Bishop of Rome, is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. Remember the word antichrist? Anti, not only meaning in opposition of, but also mean instead of. Taking the very place of Christ himself. Here another one, dignity and duties of the priest. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest proceeds, oh man, and God subscribes to it. Now, that, my friends, is blasphemy. 
Because no earthly power can take the place of Jesus. What do you say? Jesus is the only one that died for your sin. There's no human being that has died for your sin. And so for you to confess your sins to a human being that is a sinner like you, in my mind, makes no sense. We must go to Jesus himself, amen? The scriptures say go to Christ. He's your advocate. He's your, he's your priest. He's your high priest. He's your savior. He was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of of the world for you and for me. Here another one, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were a God and the vicar of God. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Now the question that we want to end with here is very simple, and that's the question, who will you worship? The book of Revelation, if you could just distill it down to, that, to a question, this would be the question, who will you worship? Will you worship Jesus or will you worship a system that has taken the place of Jesus? Now, we're going to close with a couple of comparisons here. This is really interesting. In the, book of Re in, in the gospel book, you read about how Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water. In Revelation 13, the beast comes up out of the water. Okay? He is trying to, this power is trying to counterfeit the works of Christ. Isn't it interesting that Jesus ministered, listen very carefully, for 42 months? For 1,260 days, Jesus literally ministered for 1,260 days. 1,260 days is three and a half years. That was the time that Jesus publicly ministered from the time he was baptized to the cross. This power says, okay, Jesus ministered uh, for, for 42 months, three and a half years. We will be in power for 1,260 years. Remember, day-year principle here. Interesting. It is a counterfeit, Right? Jesus, at the end of the 1260 days of ministry, he, he received a deadly wound on the cross of Calvary. This power in Revelation chapter 13 receives a deadly wound after its rule of 1260 prophetic days. Jesus rose from the grave. This power, his deadly wound, is healed. Isn't this interesting? Jesus is the one to be worshipped. Can you say amen? Jesus rose from the grave. The disciples worshipped him. We are to worship him today. Yet this power wants the worship that belongs to Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, this will be the verse that we close with. It says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. And my friends, I pray that your name and my name may be written in the Lamb's book of life. What do you say? Amen. Amen? Let your name be written in the books of heaven. Let your name be written in the book of life. Don't give your worship to a power in a system that has sought to misrepresent the character of God, but give your worship, your adoration, your all that you can muster, your enthusiasm and your passion May it belong to the one that died for you and rose for you and is coming back for you. Amen? Amen? Let's pray in closing. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, for your wonderful, wonderful prophecy. Thank you for the work that you are doing. And thank you, Lord, that in the midst of this uncertain world in which we are living, in which there are powers that are claiming to represent you, that in the midst of this you have given us your word and that we can study it in freedom that we can understand it, Lord, 
grasp it, and apply it in our lives. And I pray that our experience may be one, that we will worship you, draw close to you, and that you may be our Savior and our God. For this we pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.